Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right, good morning, class. Let's all turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 9, and then we'll get started. So let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit, asking you to, dis- to send the Divine Spirit to warm our hearts and to stir us up, O Lord, that we may have ears, eyes, and hearts open to hear your word and to receive your truth, that you will mold us and shape us and breathe your spiritual breath of life into us, O Lord, that we may not only hear words written on paper, but hear your voice to us today, speaking to us from all eternity, that we, O Lord, may be drawn closer to you, know you, love you, cherish you, and serve you not only in discreet moments in life, but worship you with our entire lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So Romans chapter 1, verses 9 to 10 says, the Apostle Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps, now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So Paul writes, for God whom I serve. Now this is translated in English, serve, but this comes from a Greek word, latruo. And that word does not just mean serve. It refers to service that is especially to God and is therefore an acceptable form of worship. So that that word refers to service that is an act of worship and worship that animates as acts of service. So now someone tell me, if this word comes from a Greek root that refers to service, that refers to acts of worship, someone tell me, what is a biblical definition of worship? What does it mean? We have, there are, there are worship pastors, there are worship services, we have praise and worship. So what does worship mean? You're getting close.
Your definition is getting close, but you use the word to define worship. So here's what the best biblical definition of worship is. Worship is going to be an active response to God and his revelation. And that active response is going to be either in body language or in deeds. One more time. What is a biblical definition of worship? And if you look at Bible dictionaries or read commentaries, there's going to be tweaking of the language and they'll use different terms. So I'm not saying this is capital T-H-E, the definition. This is giving you a broad biblical overview. A biblical definition of worship is going to be an active response to God and his revelation, either in body language or in deeds. So when we talk about now an active response to God in body language, what am I talking about? We can actually use language. We can raise our voice and sing and cry out and praise God and say, Lord, I exalt and adore you, which is worship. When someone is moved and raises their hand to heaven in response to a good word or in response to musical instruments or a song, that's an act of worship. All throughout the Bible, whenever someone has a genuine encounter with anything heavenly, what do they always do? They fall. When the Apostle John saw the risen and resurrected Christ in heaven in Revelation chapter 1, what does he say? He says, I fell down like a dead man. Because in response to divinity, in response to things that are heavenly, it actually affects us in our body language, when men fall down and prostrate themselves before God. So that's the body language response part of worship. The other part of worship now is going to be in deeds, in the service that we do. When we worship God in spirit and in truth, that now means we live a life predicated on God's truth, and we live a life that's animated and inspired by the Holy Spirit, where the things that we now do, we don't do for the sake of doing them. The things that we now do, we don't do for the sake of other people. The things that we now do are for the sake of God. Why am I here? No offense, it's not for you. It's going through you to God. You're not here to see me. You are here. We are all here ultimately with a focus on our Lord. For as Colossians 3.23 says, everything that you do, do unto the Lord. Now having this, the English word serve triggers something in our minds different than what the Greek word latro actually means. Because we live in a day and age where you can serve and not know God, right? When you go to a restaurant, there's a man or woman who's a server. And they're serving you, not because they worship you, not because they think you're a deity, they're serving you because it's their job. And when they serve you, they may not even like you. They may spit in your food. No, they want your tip. 
they may be nice to you just because they want a nice cash tip. So they're not serving you for an outward focus, they're serving you for themselves, which makes a distinction now between earthly secular service and service that's done as an act of worship. Because when there's a genuine internal love and reverence for God, there is now going to be real, genuine service. Hence the Apostle Paul says, for God whom I serve in my spirit, and this is key, because anyone who truly worships God serves him in the spirit through Jesus Christ. And this is an important point, because anyone who serves God genuinely for that service to be pleasing and acceptable to God, it must be done in the Spirit. It must be done through Christ. Because guess what? You can even, under the guise of religion, quote-unquote, serve God. But you are not serving God in the Spirit. You are serving yourself in the flesh, which now means what? That's not genuine worship. That's not genuine service, and non-genuine, non-spirit-inspired service is not pleasing to God. But any type of service, it doesn't mean having a mega church and preaching, any type of service, anything, that is done in the spirit for God's honor and glory is acceptable to God. If there is someone who is buffering a floor saying to themselves, I'm not buffering this floor for me. I am buffering this floor so when saints of God come in to a house of God, they will see someone put effort and time to make sure the saints of God are worshiping in a clean environment. Amen. That is genuine worship, which brings me back to the idea the reason why I never like the idea of calling a church service a worship service is because that gives us the idea that worship is an event, that worship happens for an hour and a half or two hours on a Sunday morning. Our entire lives, everything that we do, are acts of worship, which now come to an apex, they now come to a climax on the Sabbath, in and amongst the saints of God. So, there are many ways it's going to manifest, but true worship are, are acts of service done in the Spirit through Jesus Christ. And as 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, it is impossible to please God with works unless the motivation is God's glory. Now, Paul saying that for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son actually means something because Paul used to be a Pharisee. And Phariseeism now was predicated on legalism, meaning the motivation for doing good works was not godly. It was always external. It was for show. It was for impressing other people. It was for basically making yourself look good so you could look yourself at the end of the day and say, look what I can do, everybody. 
which wasn't serving God in the spirit, it was serving the self in the flesh. Whenever you have a trigger for service that is external and not godly, you know what that makes you? An actor. That makes you now a professional pretender. And being a professional pretender is dangerous because you can trick people. You can actually delude people into thinking everything that you're doing is of God and for God, when in reality, the person who's truly being exalted is the self. Being a professional pretender is dangerous because there are actually churches, there are actually systems of worship, there are actually entire religions predicated on people who are acting. A song and dance show that's intended to delude other people. As the psalmist says in Psalm 69.9, they express a heart focused on genuine worship where they say, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the person who could earnestly say that line and actually mean it is the one and only Jesus Christ, where zeal for the heart, for the word, for the truth, for the people of God consumed him and there in his entire life was by genuine acts of worship, where it was not self-centered, it was God-centered. And as a side note, let me just say this. We live in a society, we live in a Western American culture where we pay professional pretenders, actors, lots of money. How sad is that? How sad is it that we put a high societal value on people who spend their entire lives pretending, on people who put on an entire mask for show and for entertainment. And guess what? What does reality tell us? People flock to them. People buy magazines that tell people, what did so-and-so do today? What did so-and-so wear? So-and-so is having a baby, and it's sad because we live in a day and age where a premium is put on pretending. You can fool men, but you can never fool God. There are no phonies in heaven. Sister Lynn, do you have a question? That's not a question that I was just gonna comment that they're not called America's version of royalty. Say that one more time. They're not called America's version of royals. They are royals. Actors and actors are called America's version of, of royalty, which is sad, right? So, serving in the spirit gives the one who is serving a certain fire that drives the engine of their life, and worship is not an event. Worship is a lifestyle, because the greatest worship a person can offer to the Lord is not an event on Sunday morning. It is dedicated service through their entire lives. Why were we created? To glorify God. Why do we do anything? To glorify God. Why are we here? To glorify God. Why do we read our Bibles? To glorify God. Why do we, why do we get married? To glorify God. What's the point of everything? God. Therefore, 
Genuine Christian life equates to having an entire lifestyle of worship, serving and glorifying God. This is why in 2 Timothy 1.3, Paul can look back on his life and he reflects he could earnestly tell Timothy, a man he was grooming and cultivating to be in church leadership, that he sincerely, with a clear conscience, served and worshipped God in spirit and in truth. Now, how did the Apostle Paul worship God? What was his specific deeds and services that he executed in real life to worship God in his preaching? What does verse 9 say? For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son. This tells us what? That worship is a very broad term, and people, by the deeds that they do in their life, their worship is going to look very different. And that's okay. It's all driven by the same heart. It's all directed at the same spiritual source. But how that worship is going to look in real life is going to be different. This is why God gives particular people certain spiritual gifts. This is why God gives people certain natural talents, gifts, and abilities. You may be someone who's a fantastic money manager. That now means you may not be on the mission field. You may not be in ordained church leadership, but your gift now in managing money and making sure God's resources are going to be managed appropriately, you're now going to execute that gift and talent that God gave you to benefit God's people to ultimately glorify God. So worship is a very broad term, which is going to take different, is going to look differently on the outside, contingent upon the people, but ultimately that giftedness comes from God, works in and through God's people, and is ultimately directed back at God himself. And when we now talking about someone who's an effective witness, or through their life, who they are and how they conduct themselves in life. Someone who is now a sincere witness always, always worships God in everything that they do. But again, a sincere witness is going to look very differently, contingent upon who they are, where they are, and what God has gifted them with. So that is what true, genuine service is biblically defined. Any questions on worship and service? Good. So verse 10, Paul says, For God, who I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you all, uh, make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. We're now going to dive into the subject of prayer, which may take us two or three Sunday mornings, because prayer is big. Prayer is one member of the Holy Trinity of Christian living. But before we dive into prayer, Let's realize what's happening in this verse. Paul is writing to the people in the church at Rome, people he hasn't met yet. He's never met any of them. He's eager to go there 
but he's never met them face to face. And what is the Apostle Paul doing? He's earnestly and sincerely praying to God for people who he hasn't met yet. Which tells us from the start, this is sincere, genuine, spiritual prayer. Because the Apostle Paul, who has a pastor's heart, is so concerned about a particular people, he he doesn't even know. He hasn't even met yet. He unceasingly prays to God for their spiritual protection, their spiritual growth, and their spiritual care. So we know that the Apostle Paul praying was genuine. Now, as a brief side note, the points I'm about to make on prayer is going to be a relatively succinct synopsis. But for anyone who's looking to hear a more thorough treatment of prayer, the podcast, What Christians Should Know, that's available on your smartphone. There are two episodes. The episode numbers are 2.4a and 2.4b. And the dates are November 16th, 2015, and November 21st, 2015. Those two lessons will probably give you about an hour and a half on what prayer is, what it means, and how to do it. What Christians should know, episodes 2.4a, 2.4b, November 16th, 2015, November 21st, 2015. Yes. Before you proceed, um, was this before Paul went to Rome, and, uh, before his arrest? I just need to start with frame of reference. Yes. So Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans before he came anywhere within 100 miles of the, uh, the city of Rome. Right. Which is an interesting point, because you now forced me to go ahead, because Paul was praying... I want to come to you all, but the will of God has prevented me. What Paul was praying for was to get to Rome, and how did he end up getting there? In chains. Which tells us, when you pray to God, be careful, because he may actually answer you. It's not going to be in the way that you originally designed. No other questions. Good. So Paul was making requests in prayer... But what is prayer? Someone tell me, what is prayer? Talking to God. Getting there. What is prayer? Giving supplications to God, even closer. We're pretty much kissing the definition. And, and, and here's how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mold everything everyone said. It's more than just asking because you can ask and not genuinely know God. It's more than just talking to God because you can talk to God and actually be angry at him. Right? So here now we're going to refine this. What prayer is, B.M. Palmer says in Theology of Prayer, 
that prayer is the language of creaturely dependence. Prayer is the language of creaturely dependence. It's a language of the mouth or language of the heart where the person admits they are the creature, they are the subordinate, and God is the creator. And we pray to our Father, our creator, because we know that we are utterly and totally dependent on him. But to refine it even further, what's now going to make prayer genuine is that what drives the prayer is our faith. Because we actually believe in we actually trust in the one that we're praying to, that's why we're praying. Because if we didn't trust God, if we didn't like God, if we didn't believe in his promises, guess what? We wouldn't be praying to him. So the inward faith, the inward trust of God is what now animates the outward prayer. Now I'm gonna end on this point on prayer before we close. We all have natural senses. We have eyes to see. We have mouths to taste. We have lungs now that allow us to breathe in air, right? But God now also gives us spiritual senses. We have spiritual thirst, and Jesus is the well of life-giving water. We have spiritual hunger, where Jesus now is the all-satisfying bread of life. Guess what, church? Prayer is how we spiritually breathe. Why do I say that? Because genuine prayer is animated by the Holy Spirit, also referred to as the wind, oftentimes in the Bible, who's the one who animates our prayers, who inspires us by the, the figurative breath of his spiritual wind, which now goes into us. Now here's the thing, in a natural sense, if you're breathing in oxygen, guess what happens? You live, right? Because oxygen goes into your lungs and that nourishes and sustains you. So now when we pray and we're breathing in the Holy Spirit, what now happens? Our spiritual vitality, our spiritual intimacy, our spiritual closeness to God grows just as we're dependent on things in the natural realm to sustain our natural lives. We're dependent on prayer to sustain our spiritual lives. Now you show me any person who is a rock for God who is an ironclad titan of faith, one of the first questions I want to ask them is, tell me about your prayer life. Tell me when you get up. Tell me about your rhythms. Tell me about your prayer challenges. Tell me what you do when you feel like you don't want to pray. Because in the Bible, who was the greatest titan of prayer? Jesus was. <laughs> What were you going to say? <laughs> David came close. He wrote most of the Psalms, so he gave us the most practical help. But the person who was praying the most was Jesus. In fact, what the New Testament tells us is Jesus oftentimes stopped doing good to pray. He stopped healing people. He stopped exercising demons to go pray. 
That's a godly example telling us if God in the flesh needed to pray that much, how much more utterly dependent are you and I to pray? Say it again. There you go. So prayer is critically, vitally, essentially important. And that's what allows us to, figuratively speaking now, breathe in the Holy Spirit and grow and cultivate our spiritual lives. We'll dive into more of what prayer is uh, next time. Question? No. No. Any questions? Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you once again for the time that you've made available for us to study your word. And as we move forward next week and the week after to meditate on and have a true spiritual understanding, not only of the worship we execute in service to you, we entreat you, O Lord, just to open our spiritual hearts that we will have a fervor, a yearning, and a desire to make space, to make room, and to have a zeal in our prayer time and prayer closets that you, Holy Spirit, will pour out your spiritual presence on our lives and to reform and animate our hearts. So a zeal for you, Lord Jesus, will consume us and we will be a spiritual people who will thus be and therein do in every facet of our lives for your honor and your glory. Father, we are yours. Mold us and shape us to be more like our corporate head, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.